Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Old Testament. I am so excited to begin this journey with you through the book of Joshua, and I do see it that way. This is something I've been praying about and thinking about for a long time, and this really is the beginning of a journey. We're going to be taking this together as we're walking through this book, trying to discern what it is that God has for us as we're looking uh, through this at this moment in our church. This is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Joshua is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. This is one of my favorite moments in the Old Testament. This is a book filled with all kinds of adventure and victories and excitement and supernatural work of God. It is a book of great movement and joy and a book that reminds us of the faithfulness of our God. But more than I'm excited about the book, I'm excited about this moment. I'm just really excited about this moment in the life of our church and what God is doing. I mean, we've spent most of this year building a foundation. We talked about the mission of our church, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. We talked about the method of our church, that we will accomplish our mission by equipping people to live an upward life of worship, an inward life in community, and an outward life on mission. We talked about the membership of our church, clarifying who it is that is moving with us. But all of those things, the what, the how, the who, all of that was for a greater purpose. Those things were never meant to be an end of themselves. The goal of those things was to set for us a proper foundation so that we might move forward advancing the kingdom of Christ. It is important for us coming out of the first couple of months of this year, not thinking that that was an end in and of itself. All of those things matter because we long to experience the fullness of everything God has for us. My prayer over and over for us as a church this year has been this, God, I don't know what you have in your mind for Prince Avenue Baptist Church. I, I don't know your wildest dreams for why you brought us to this location and are stirring things up. I don't know what it is. All I know is I want to get every bit of it. I don't want to miss one thing that God has in store for us. And I feel like God's stirring that in our hearts, that there is a desire to take hold of the promises of God, to take God at his word and experience all that God has for us. And I don't know any book in all of the Old Testament which gives us a better model of exactly how to do that than the book of Joshua how it is that we can take hold of all of the promises of God. Now, starting in a series like this does present some challenges. The greatest challenge is that here we are this morning jumping into the sixth book of the Bible. And the Bible is not a series of isolated short stories unrelated to one another. The truth is, the Bible is one unfolding story. It is the story of God's movement throughout history, a story that is continuing even this morning. And it's important for us to understand this story in the context of God's greater story. If you wanted to study American history and you were to go get Howard Zinn's book on a, a people's history of the United States, and I were to say to you, listen, uh, the first chapters are just okay, but if I were you, I'd just skip to chapter six, get past the Revolutionary War, and, and then just you know, kind of get to some of the more exciting parts. Well, the fact is, is you wouldn't understand the history of the United States, that we are who we are and are moving the way that we're moving because of where we came from. 
And so it is, you have to be careful not to just jump into the sixth book of the Bible and forget that this is an ongoing story of God. And even if you look at the very first uh, words of the book of Joshua, in my translation, the ESV, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now arise and go over the Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. And we'll talk more about that next week, but the actual translation of that verse is this. And it happened after the death of Moses. It is, it is a sentence that is assuming we understand what just happened. That we understand Moses and we understand the people and we understand why the land is important and that this is a part of a greater movement of God. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to set the book of Joshua in its context. I want us to see where it fits in. And I will jump right into Joshua chapter 1 next week. But the reason I want to do this is not simply so that we will see Joshua's place in God's story. But I want us this morning to be able to see our place in God's story. You see, understanding this story in context not only helps us to understand ourselves better, it helps us to understand God better who is still writing history. So we have to begin at the beginning. And here's what I want you to see from the very beginning of the story. The Bible begins with life as God intended for it to be. That's how the story begins. Life is how God intended for it to be. The life that we now see, the world around us, is not the life that God intended for us to live. Genesis 1 and 2 shows us life as God designed it. And life as God designed it is characterized by four realities. I would encourage you to write these down because we will see these throughout the whole story. Life as God intended it to be is God's people living in God's place, experiencing God's peace, fulfilling God's purpose. It is God's people living in God's place, experiencing God's peace, and fulfilling God's purpose. Those four words, God's people in God's place, experiencing God's peace, fulfilling God's purpose. And that's exactly what you see in Genesis 1 and 2. God has created his people, Adam and Eve. And he has placed them in his place, the Garden of Eden. And he has placed them there that they might experience the fullness of all that God is, that they might know what it is like to live at peace with God, resting in their relationship with God, knowing him and being known by him. And do you know that even in the Garden of Eden, God had a purpose he intended to fill, fulfill with Adam and Eve? That it wasn't just God's people in God's place experiencing God's peace. There's this incredible vision in Genesis chapter 2 where there is a river flowing into the Garden of Eden, which symbolizes the very presence of the Lord going into Eden. But do you know that going out of Eden were four separate rivers, which give us a picture of God's desire for the life that Adam and Eve were experiencing to spread throughout the ends of the earth. It was always God's desire that the glory of the knowledge of the Lord would spread to the ends of the earth and cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. It was always God's intention that that life that Adam and Eve experienced would be the life that the whole world experiences. Being God's people, 
in God's place, enjoying his peace and fulfilling God's purposes. And it was exactly that for about two chapters. It very quickly went terribly wrong that Adam and Eve were not satisfied with life as God intended for it to be. They had an idea that they could improve upon this life. They did not want to submit to the authority of God. So in an act of direct obedience, they rebelled against God. Listen, and at the moment that happened, everything was lost. Everything was lost. They are now separated from their relationship with God. They are exiled from God's place in Eden. Instead of experiencing God's peace and God's blessing and God's rest, they are experiencing the weight and the guilt and the shame of sin. And instead of God fulfilling his purpose to spread his glory to the ends of the earth, more quickly than you can even imagine, it is sin that is spreading to the ends of the earth. Everything was lost and everything was broken. The next eight chapters of Genesis seem to get worse and worse and worse and worse as you see the brokenness of humanity spreading, that, that sin and strife and anger and jealousy and immorality and idolatry were spreading across all of the earth. Everything was lost and everything was broken. But God still desired to fulfill his promise. God's desire was still, even at that moment, to restore life as it was meant to be. God's mission of allowing us to experience life as he designed it has always been the mission. When you turn to Genesis chapter 12, you start to give a little picture of exactly how he's going to do that. So God goes to a faithful old man by the name of Abraham who has no children, and his wife is barren and unable to have children. And in Genesis chapter 12, God makes Abraham a promise. Here's what he says. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Not only that, I'm going to lead you into a greater land. I want you to go to a land that I have promised you. And not only that, I am going to pour out my blessing upon you so that through you, the nations might be blessed. Does anything about that sound familiar? That God was coming to make a covenant with Abraham to say this, Abraham, I'm going to make you into my people and you are going to go into my place and you are going to experience my peace and my blessing and through you as the distinct holy people of God, I will fulfill my purpose by allowing my glory through you and my blessing to spread to the ends of the earth. God was beginning to restore what was lost. God was beginning to fix what was broken. And from that moment on, episode after episode is the unfolding of this story in which God has one primary desire. Life as it was meant to be. So in Genesis, Abraham has a son, and then that son has a son, and then that son has 12 sons. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, there's probably over a million of them all gathered together in Egypt. And they're there for 400 years. You say, why are they having to be there for 400 years? Because in order for God to fulfill his promises, sometimes it takes time. If he's going to have descendants that number the sand on the seashore, that doesn't come quickly. And so God keeps them there for 400 years where there's just this massive multitude of God's people. 
And you turn to the book of Exodus and God dramatically delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt and he brings them out so that he might bring them into this new land. He stops them at Mount Sinai and he makes a covenant with them. And he says, listen, the only way this is gonna work is if you follow me and I will lead you. But you must know that it is my design for you to be a holy and a distinct people of God. And he shows them what it looks like to be the people of God. And he gathers them and assembles them and reminds them of who they are. And then Moses begins to lead them. The whole goal is getting to life as it was meant to be. The whole goal is to enter into the promised land. And all they had to do was trust and to follow him. But if you've read this story, they almost immediately begin to grumble and complain at God. I mean, right when they had gotten out of Egypt, having been in slavery, they begin to complain that God is not good enough, that they wish they were back in Egypt. They don't want to follow the Lord. But God is patient with them moment after moment. Even though they continue to fall short, God is keeping his covenant. And then listen to this. Knowing what God has done and knowing what he's promised them, this seems to be an unbelievable moment. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He's meeting with God. But the people down below become impatient with God and they become impatient with God's leader, Moses. And all of a sudden, Moses begins to hear some stirring and he comes down and what he finds is that all the people of God have taken all of their gold, precious jewelry and they've melted it together and made a golden calf to which they begin to worship saying this, praise the one who delivered us out of Egypt. They begin to give glory to a golden calf as if the golden calf was the one that delivered them out of Egypt. And it seems at that moment that God had 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 enough and he was almost done with the people and Moses interceded on their behalf and said, Lord, please be patient with them. And all of a sudden, a couple of chapters later, you get this statement about the Lord which becomes a common refrain throughout the Old Testament which we desperately need to hold on to knowing how difficult it is for God's people to remain faithful, the Lord says this. In Exodus 34, 6, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You say, why is God so patient with his people? Because the character of God is that he is abounding in steadfast love. He is a patient God. He is slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. And so even after that, he continues to lead his people. You get into the book of Numbers and the mission is still there. Let's get God's people in God's place and they're his peace for his purposes. There's two very dramatic episodes in the book of Numbers that change things. The first one is right when they get close to the land that God had promised them, knowing exactly where that land was, listen, Moses sent 12 spies into the land to go spy out the land. They came back, and out of the 12 spies that were sent into the land, listen to this, the land that God had already promised was theirs. God said, this is yours. You just gotta go take it. But it's already yours. Only two of the 12 spies came back believing that God was able to give them the land. 10 of the 12 spies said, no, no, there's no way. Their their people are too big. Their forces are too strong. Their armies are too mighty. They could not see the greatness of God. All they could do is fear that which God had already said that they would conquer. The only two men who believed were Joshua and Caleb. And then Moses. 
the strangest of moments, was called to speak to a rock to get water out of the rock so the people could have something to drink. But Moses, in a moment of unfaithfulness, struck the rock instead of spoke to the rock, taking some of the glory for himself and not giving the glory to God. And after those two episodes, the Lord finally said this. He said, listen, I am gonna continue to fulfill my mission, but this generation, because of their stubbornness, will not get into the promised land. And the entire book of Deuteronomy, listen to this, the entire book of Deuteronomy is the people of God looking over the Jordan River, seeing all the promise, the land that was promised to them, but unable to take it until that entire generation died. Having missed everything that God had for them, having missed being his people in his place, experiencing his peace for his purposes because of their failure to trust and obey. And it is at that moment in which you come to the book of Joshua. Now I want you to think about this. The book of Joshua is a gathering of young people. Everybody from the previous generation died except two old men, Joshua and Caleb. They were allowed to see the land because of their faith and believing that God would lead them there. This is a new, young, hungry generation. They all grew up in the wilderness. They all grew up watching their parents grumble and complain and whine and, 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 and miss out on all of the good purposes God had for them. They all grew up knowing that if their parents would have just trusted and followed Jesus, that they would already be in the land. And this new generation is longing to experience the goodness of all that God has for them. They're ready, they're hungry, they're longing for it. So God raises up a new leader by the name of Joshua. And it is his command then by God to go lead the people into taking the land. This entire book is the movement of God's people getting back into that place, life as it was meant to be. It is God's people experiencing God's peace in his place. The book of Joshua, it finally happens. I mean, this, this, this is the climax of the Old Testament. I mean, this is as good as life gets to such an extent, and write this text down in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. The people of God watch and they work and they see God fight for them and they see God continue to keep his promises. And it says this at the end of Joshua 21, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Listen, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. They're here. They're here. This is God's people finally in God's place, experiencing God's peace, fulfilling God's promises. Every single promise God had made to the forefathers was all being filled here. It said not one of them failed and all of them came to pass. This is the climax of the Old Testament. This is as close as we get in the Old Testament to life as it was meant to be. 
Now you say, well, it seems a little early in the book for the climax of the Old Testament. Well, you're right. And it's because if you go just a few pages over to Judges chapter 2, you read this. That all of Joshua's generation which experienced the supernatural work of God and saw God keep every promise died. And the generation after Joshua's, listen, did not know the works of the Lord. One generation later did not know what God had done. And then you have the judges and the kings and the prophets and generation after generation failing to trust the Lord. You then have God exiling his people, removing them from the land because of their failure to keep the covenant. And then you end the Old Testament with a remnant, just a small remnant that are still believing. And then for 400 years, God goes silent. And as you look at at Joshua and what's happening in this moment, it becomes clear that although Joshua was as close as we get to life as it was meant to be, it was not ultimate. That there has to be more. That This cannot be as good as it gets. There has to be something more that God is intending to do. And what you understand when you see this in the whole scope of Scripture is what Joshua experienced here was just a taste of what it is that God is doing. It is just a partial fulfillment of the whole that there was more coming. And 1,400 years later, after this moment, God sent a greater Joshua, whose name in Greek was the Hebrew of Joshua. His name was Jesus, the God who saves. He was the strong and courageous one. He is the one that kept every word of the law. He is the one that came with the exact same mission. The mission of Jesus Christ is this, together a people, to lead them into the kingdom, into God's place, to allow them to experience the peace of God so that they might fulfill the very purposes of God. And that's exactly what Jesus did, one person at a time. He called them out. He gathered them together. He said, I'm going to bring you into my kingdom, and together we are going to experience the blessing of God, and we will together fulfill the very purposes of God. God's mission has always been the same. Jesus coming once again together for himself, a people. Now let me tell you why this matters so much for us. Listen carefully. Every person must come to a moment of decision. Whether you choose to believe or not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to life as it was meant to be, that there is no real life outside of Jesus Christ, that you cannot save yourself, that we are consistently faithless when God is still faithful, and so we must throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ and be saved by his death from our sins. And at the moment in which you make that decision, what happens is that you begin at that moment to experience life as God intended for it to be. So much so that 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The moment in which you come to Christ, God begins to make you into something new. 1 Peter 2 takes all of this Old Testament language and says, listen, the people of God, this chosen race, this royal priesthood, the people for God's possession, you know who that is? That's the people of Jesus Christ. That's God's people. 
It tells us in Ephesians 1 that all of the peace and all of the rest and all of the blessings that God intended for us to have now belong to us in Jesus Christ. They're ours for the taking. And then it says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the rest that we are to experience in God, that life of peace with God is now ours through Jesus Christ. And you realize when you open up the book of Joshua, when it talks about the land over 102 times, and it talks about rest 16 times, that it's not about land, it's not about rest, it's about bringing people back to life as God intended for it to be. And at the moment you come to Christ, you begin to experience that life. God, through Jesus Christ, is restoring life as it was meant to be. Slowly but surely, he's making us new, he's changing us, and allowing us to experience that life that he always intended. But listen, even now, it's just, it's just a taste. It's just a small taste of, of what is to come. Life with Jesus is the best of all possible lives in a broken world. Let me say that again. Life with Jesus is the best of all possible lives in a broken world, but we still live in a broken world. Sin is still a reality. Things are still broken. Things are still lost. But this is as good as it gets. Life with Jesus Christ in a broken world. But I'm here to tell you this morning that there is is more. There is so much more. God is faithful. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will see you until the end as you trust and follow him. He will lead you not only to experiencing his life now, but he will lead you to an eternity where life as it was always meant to be. The fullness of all the promises of God, all of God's people gathered in God's place, experiencing all of God's peace, fulfilling God's purposes. This whole week as I'm meditating upon these things, I cannot help but to over and over again think about these words. Hear this, church. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation. I'm purchased of God. I'm born of his spirit and washed in his blood. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior are happy and blessed. Listen, though, but I'm watching and waiting and I'm looking above. I'm filled with his goodness and lost in his love. You say, what is the story of God's people? This is my story. This is my song. That in this life, I get to taste of the goodness of the Lord. But it is simply a foretaste of the glory that is coming for those who are in Jesus Christ. It is just a taste. And so we feast and we enjoy him and we gather in a moment like this to get a little taste of what God has for us. But we recognize in this moment that we still live in a broken world and we long for the fullness of the promises which are coming for every one of you who are found in Jesus Christ. So if you are not trusting and following Jesus Christ, let it be clear that there is no real life outside of Jesus. 
But there is continued shame and continued brokenness. And it's not that at the moment you give your life to Jesus, everything gets put back together. What it does mean is this, is the moment you give your life to Jesus, he starts rebuilding your life and restoring you back into the life it was meant to be. But there is no life outside of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who know him, can I just, can I just plead with you? to continue to hunger and thirst for him, moment by moment to get into this word, together with the people of God, and continue to taste the goodness of the Lord, but just know this, there is more. And the goodness of everything you experience in Christ right now is a foretaste to glory divine. I assure you, based upon the promises of God, listen, church, the best is yet to come. God is not finished. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.